Section 9 of Herbert's Their Origin and Evolution, a chapter in the history of botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Herbert's Their Origin and Evolution, a chapter in the history of botany, by Agnisaba. Chapter 4 The Botanical Renaissance of the 16th and 17th Centuries, Part 6 the herbal in England. The greatest name among British herbalists of the Renaissance period is that of William Turner, physician and divine, the father of British botany. He was a North Countryman, a native of Morpeth in Northumberland, where he was born probably between 1510 and 1515. He received his education at what is now Pembroke College in Cambridge. Pembroke deserves to be especially held in honour by botanists, for a hundred years later, Nehemiah Grew, who was as preeminent among British botanists of the 17th century as Turner was among those of the 16th, also became a student at this college. Like so many of the early botanists, William Turner was closely associated with the Reformation. He embraced the views of his friends and instructors at Cambridge, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, and fought for the Reformed faith throughout his life, both with pen and by word of mouth. His caustic wit was also used with almost equal vehemence, to attack the abuses which crept into his own party. A ban was put upon his writings in the reign of Henry the Eighth, and for a time he suffered imprisonment, but when Edward the Sixth came to the throne, his fortunes improved, and after a long and tedious period of waiting for preferment, he obtained the deanery of Wells. Difficulty in ejecting the previous dean caused much delay in obtaining possession of the house, and Turner lamented bitterly that, in the small and crowded temporary lodging, I cannot go to my book, for ye crying of children and noise it is made in my chamber. A clergyman's life must have been full of unwelcome vicissitudes in those days, if Turner's career was at all typical. During Mary's reign he was a fugitive, and the former Dean of Wells was reinstated. However, when Elizabeth ascended the throne, the position was reversed, and Turner came back to Wells, the usurper, as he calls his rival, being ejected. But his triumph was short-lived, for in 1564 he was suspended for non-conformity. His controversial methods were violent in the extreme, and he seems to have been a thorn in the flesh of his superiors. The Bishop of Bath and Wells wrote on one occasion that he was much encumbered with Mr. Dr. Turner, Dean of Wells, for his undiscreet behaviour in the pulpit, where he met with, with all matters, and unseemly speaketh of all estates, more than his standing with discretion. Christian doctrine was by no means the only subject that occupied Turner's attention. He had taken a medical degree, either at Ferrara or Bologna, and in the reign of Edward VI he was a physician to the Duke of Somerset, the Protector. He had travelled much in Italy, Switzerland, Holland and Germany, at the periods when his religious opinions excluded him from England. One of the great advantages which he reaped from his wanderings was the opportunity of studying botany at Bologna under Luca Gini, who was also the teacher of Cesalpino. Another savant with whom he became acquainted on the continent was Conrad Gessner, whom he visited at Zurich, and with whom he maintained a warm friendship. He also corresponded with Leonard Fuchs. Turner's earliest botanical work was the Libellus de Re Habaria Novus, fifteen thirty eight which is the first book in which localities for many of our native British plants are placed on record. 
In 1548, this was followed by another little work. The names of herbs in Greek, Latin, English, Dutch and French with the common names that herbaries and apothecaries use. In the preface to this book, Turner tells us that he had projected a Latin herbal, and had indeed written it, but refrained from publishing it because when he asked the advice of physicians in this matter, their advice was that I should cease from setting out of this book in Latin till I had seen those places of England, wherein is most plenty of herbs, that I might in my herbal declare to the great honour of our country what number of sovereign and strange herbs were in England that were not in other nations, whose counsel I have followed deferring to set up my herbal in Latin, till that I have seen the West Country, which I never saw yet in all my life, which country of all places of England, as I here say, is most richly replenished with all kinds of strange and wonderful works and gifts of nature, as are stones, herbs, fishes and metals. He explains that while waiting to complete his herbal, he has been advised to publish his little book, in which he has set forth the names of plants. He adds, And because man should not think that I write of that I never saw, and that apothecaries should be excuseless when as the right herbs are required of them, I have showed in what places of England, Germany and Italy the herbs grow, and may be had for labour and money. Turner's chef de oeuvre was his herbel, published in three instalments, the first in London in 1551, the first and second together at Cologne in 1562, during his exile in the reign of Mary, and the third part, together with the preceding, in 1568. The title of the first part runs as follows. A new herbal, wherein are contained the names of herbs, with the properties, degrees, and natural places of the same, gathered and made by William Turner, physician unto Duke of Somerset's grace. The figures illustrating the herbal are, for the most part, the same as those in the octavo edition of Fuchs's work, published in 1545. The dedication of the herbal, in its completed form, to Queen Elizabeth, throws some light on Turner's life, and, incidentally, on that illustrious lady herself. The doctor recalls, with pardonable pride and perhaps a touch of blarney, an occasion on which the Princess Elizabeth, as she then was, had conversed with him in Latin. As for your knowledge in the Latin tongue, he writes, eighteen years ago or more, I had in the Duke of Somerset's house, being his physician at that time, a good trial thereof, when as it pleased your grace to speak Latin unto me, for although I have both in England, Low and High Germany, and other places of my long travel and pilgrimage, never spoke with any noble or gentlewoman that spoke so well and so much congru, fine and pure Latin, as your grace did unto me so long ago. Turner defends himself against the insinuation that a book in treating only of trees, herbs and weeds and shrubs is not a met present for a prince. And certainly, if we accept his account of the state of knowledge at the time, the need for such a book must have been most urgent. He explains that, while he was still at Pembroke Hall, Cambridge, he endeavoured to learn the names of plants, but such was the ignorance and symbols at that time that he could get no information on the subject, even from physicians. He claims that his herbal has considerable originality, a claim which seems well-founded. In his own words, They that have read the first part of my herbal, and have compared my writings of plants with those things that Martiolus, Fuxius, Tragus, and Dodoneus wrote in their first editions of the herbals, may easily perceive that I taught the truth of certain plants, 
which these above-named writers either knew not at all, or else erred in them greatly. So it, as I learned something of them, so they either might, or did learn something of me again, as the second editions may testify. And because I would not be like unto a crier, it crieth a lost horse in the market, and telleth all the marks and tokens that he hath, and yet never saw the horse, neither could know the horse if we saw him, I went into Italy, and into diverse parts of Germany, to know and see the herbs myself. This herbal contains many evidences of Turner's independence of thought. He fought against what he regarded as superstition and science, with the same ardour with which he entered upon religious polemics. The legend of the human form of the mandrake receives scant mercy at his hands. As he points out, the roots which are counterfeited and made like little puppets and mammoths which come to be sold in England in boxes with air and such form as man hath are nothing else but foolish faint trifles and not natural for they are so trimmed of crafty thieves to mock the poor people withal and to rob them of both their wit and their money i have in my time at diverse times taken up the roots of mandrake out of the ground but i never saw any such thing upon or in them as are in and upon the petless roots that are commonly to be sold in boxes. Turner was, however, by no means the first to dispute the mandrake superstition. In the Greta Herbal of 1526 it is definitely refuted, and it is ignored in some works that are of even earlier date. The hoax was long-lived, for we find Gerard also exposing it in 1597. Turner had a fine scorn for any superstitious notions he detected in the writings of his contemporaries and seems to have been particularly pleased if he could show that, in any disputed matter, they were wrong, while the ancients, for whom he had great reverence, were right. For instance, he has a great deal to say about a theory, held by Mattioli, in opposition to the opinions of Theophrastus and Dioscorides, that the broom-rape, or Obanche, could kill other plants merely by its baneful presence, without any physical contact. He declares that this view is against reason, authority and experience, and points out that the figure which Mattioli gives is faulty, in omitting to show the roots, which are the real instruments of destruction. He triumphantly concludes, And, as touching experience, I know that the fresh and young Orobanche hath coming out of the great root many little strings, wherewith it taketh hold of the roots of the herbs that grow next unto it, wherefore Mattiolis ought not so lightly to have defaced the authority of Theophrast, so ancient and substantial order. Turner's work is largely occupied with the opinions of early writers, especially Dioscorides, and his respect for their authority is a somewhat curious trait in a character which seems, in other directions, to have been so unorthodox. He did not, however, treat their books as the last word on the subject, and the third part of his herbal is occupied with plans, whereof is no mention made neither of the old Grecians nor Latins. Turner's herbal is arranged alphabetically, and does not show evidence of any interest in the relationships of the plants. It is as individuals, and essentially as simples, that he regarded them. His descriptions of them were often vividly expressed, though not markedly original. It must be remembered that botany was not the only science which he studied. He wrote about birds, and also contributed information about English fishes to Gessner's Historia Animalium. Before discussing the next herbal which appeared in this country, we may refer in passing to a botanical book which hardly comes under this heading, but which is of interest in relation to the history of the time. Nicholas Monardis, 
a Spanish physician, had published, in 1569 and 1571, some account of the plants which had lately been brought to Europe from the recently discovered West Indies, and this work was translated into English by John Frampton in 1577, under the title of Joyful News Out of the New Found World. This book contains a good figure of the tobacco plant, text figure 52, perhaps the first ever published, and also a long account on its virtues. The reader is told that the Negroes and Indians, after inhaling tobacco smoke, do remain lightened without any weariness, for to labour again, and they do this with so great pleasure that although they be not weary, yet they are very desirous for to do it, and the thing is come to so much effect that their maesters doth chasten them for it, and do burn the tobacco, because they should not use it. Twenty-seven years after the appearance of the first part of Turner's Herbal, a translation of Dadoan's work, made by Henry Light, appeared in England. Light was born about 1529, and towards the end of the reign of Henry the Eighth, he became a student at Oxford. He was a man of means, addicted to travel, and his temperament seems to have been much milder and less revolutionary than that of his predecessor Turner. He did not perhaps add very greatly to the knowledge of English botany, but he did a valuable service in introducing the Doan's herbal into this country. His book, which was published in 1578, was professedly a translation of the French version of the Doan's Kreudebock of 1554, which had been made by de Lecluse in 1557. Light's copy of this work, with copious manuscript notes, and on the title page, the quaint endorsement, Henry Light taught me to speak English, is preserved in the British Museum. This copy proves that Light was no mere mechanical translator, for the work is annotated and corrected with great care, references to Delabelle and Turner being introduced. The title of Light's book is as follows. A new herbal or history of plants, wherein is contained the whole discourse and perfect description of all sorts of herbs and plants, their diverse and sundry kinds, their strange figures, fashions and shapes, their names, natures, operations and virtues, and that not only of those which are here growing in this our country of England, but of all others also of foreign realms, commonly used in physic. First set forth in the Dutch or Almain tongue by that learned D. Rambert Dodoens, physician to the emperor, and now first translated out of French into English by Henry Light Esquire. The illustrations used in the book were the same as those which had appeared in the translation by de Lecluse, and were, for the most part, copies of those in the octavo edition of Fox's Herbal, with some additional blocks, which had been cut specially for de Doens. The result is that many of the same figures occur both in Turner and in Light. There are said to be 870 figures in Light's Herbal, of which about 30 are new. Of the letter, Centauria Raponticum is an example. Text figure 53. Light occasionally adds a criticism of his own in a different type from that used in the main body of the text. At the beginning of the book, there is a long set of doggerel verses, in commendation of this work, which imply that Rambert Dodoens himself made additions to the English translation. The most important stanza is the following. Great was his toil, which first this work did frame, and so was his, which ventured to translate it. For when he had full finished all the same, he minded not to add, nor to abate it. But what he found, he meant whole to relate it, till Rambert he did send additions store, for to augment light's travel past before.
We now come to John Gerard, Plate Twelve, the best known of all the English herbalists, but who, it must be confessed, scarcely deserves the fame which has fallen to his share. Gerard, a native of Cheshire, was a master in chirurgery, but was better known as a remarkably successful gardener. For twenty years he supervised the gardens belonging to Lord Burley in the Strand, and at Theobald's in Hertfordshire, besides having himself a famous garden in Holborn, then the most fashionable district of London. In 1596 he published a list of plants which he cultivated in Holborn, which is interesting as being the first complete catalogue ever published of the contents of a single garden. Gerard's reputation rests, however, on a much larger work, the Herbal or General History of Plants, printed by John Norton in 1597. But the manner in which this book originated does the author little credit. It seems that Norton, the publisher, had commissioned a certain Dr. Priest to translate de Doen's final work, the Pemtardis, of 1583, into English, but Priest died before the work was finished. Gerard simply adopted Priest's translation, completed it, and published it as his own, merely altering the arrangement from that of de Doen's to that of de la Belle. He adds insult to injury by gratuitously remarking, in an address to the reader at the beginning of the herbal, that Dr. Priest, one of our London college, hath, as I heard, translated the last edition of Dodonius, which meant to publish the same, but being prevented by death, his translation likewise perished. After the manner of the period, the herbal is embellished with a number of prefatory letters, in one of which, written by Stephen Bradwell, the statement occurs which is so inconsistent with Gerard's own remarks, that he certainly committed an oversight in allowing it to stand. In Bradwell's words, D. Priest, for this translation of so much of Dodoneus, hath hereby left at home for this honourable sepulture. Master Gerard, coming last, but not the least, hath many ways accommodated the whole work unto our English nation. The Herbal is a massive volume, in clear Roman type, contrasting markedly with a black letter used in the works of Turner and Light, and giving the book a much more modern appearance. It contains about 1,800 woodcuts, nearly all from blocks used by Tabernae Montanus in his Iconus of 1590, which Norton obtained from Frankfurt, less than 1% are original. There is an illustration representing the Virginian potato, which appears to be new, and is perhaps the first figure of this plant ever published, text figure 60. Gerard did not know enough about botany to couple the wood blocks of Tabernae Montanus with their appropriate descriptions, and Delabelle was requested by the printer to correct the author's blunders. This he did, according to his own account, in very many places, but yet not so many as he wished, since Gerard became impatient and summarily stopped at the process of emendation, on the ground that Delabelle had forgotten his English. After this episode, the relations between the two botanists seem, not unnaturally, to have become somewhat strained. Gerard evidently aimed at conveying information in simple language, for in one place, where he speaks of a preparation being squirted into the ice, he apologises for the colloquialism, explaining that he does not wish to be over-eloquent among gentlewomen, unto whom especially my works are most necessary. The value of Gerard's work must inevitably be at a discount when we realise that it is impossible, from internal evidence, to accept him as a credible witness. His oft-quoted account of the goose-tree, barnacle-tree or the tree bearing geese, removes what little respect one may have felt for him as a scientist, 
not so much because he held an absurd belief, which was widely accepted at the time, but rather because he went out of his way to state that it was confirmed by his own observations. He gives a figure to illustrate the origin of the geese, text figure 54, which is not, however, original. Gerard relates how trees, actually bearing shells which open and hatch out barnacle geese, occur in the orchids, but he states that on this point he has no first-hand knowledge. He proceeds, however, to remark, But what our eyes have seen, and hands have touched, we shall declare. There is a small island in Lancashire, called the Pile of Fowlers, wherein are found the broken pieces of old and bruised ships, some whereof have been cast thither by shipwreck, and also the trunks or bodies, with the branches of old and rotten trees, cast up there likewise, whereon is found a certain spume or froth, that in time breedeth unto certain shells, in shape like those of the muscle, but sharper pointed, and of a whitish colour, wherein is contained a thing in form like a lace of silk finely woven, as it were together, of a whitish colour, one end whereof is fastened unto the inside of the shell, even as the fish of oysters and mussels are, the other end is made fast unto the belly of a root mass or lump, which in time cometh to the shape and form of a bird. When it is perfectly formed, the shell gapeth open, and the first thing that appeareth is the forset lace or string. Next come the legs of the bird hanging out, and as it groweth greater, it openeth the shell by degrees, till at length it is all come forth, and hangeth only by the bill. In short space after it cometh to full maturity, and falleth into the sea, where it gathereth feathers, and groweth to a fowl bigger than a mallet, and lesser than a goose. The fable of the goose-tree was rejected in the later editions of Gerard's Herbal, published after the author's death. It reappears, however, later in the seventeenth century, in the Historia Naturalis of John Johnston. The legend is of respectable antiquity, being found in various early chronicles. Sebastian Minster, for example, in his Cosmographia, printed at Basel in 1545, refers to it as recorded by previous writers, and figures a tree with pendant fruits, out of which geese are dropping into a lake or stream. Hector Boethius, Boeke, in a Scottish chronicle, gives a quaint account of the origin of the geese from driftwood in the sea. In the small bodies in Hollis, of which grow small worms. First they shore their head and fate, and last of all they shore their plum and wings. Finally, when they are coming to the just measure and quantity of geese, they fly into the air as other fowls do. It is rather surprising to find that William Turner was a believer in the same myth, although, unlike Gerard, he took great pains to satisfy himself of the truth of the story, which he seems to have approached with quite an open mind. His account is as follows. When after a certain time the firwood masts or planks of yard-arms of a ship have rotted on the sea, then fungi, as it were, break out upon them first, in which in course of time one may discern evident forms of birds, which afterwards are clothed in feathers, and at last become alive and fly. Now lest this should seem fabulous to any one, besides the common evidence of all the longshoremen of England, Ireland, and Scotland, that renowned historian Geraldus bears witness that the generation of the Bernicles is none other than this, but inasmuch as it seemed heartfully safe to trust the vulgar, and by reason of the rarity of the thing, I did not quite credit Geraldus. I took counsel of a certain man, whose upright conduct, often proved by me, had justified my trust, a theologian by profession and an Irishman by birth, Octavian by name. 
whether he thought Geraldus worthy of belief in this affair, who, taking oath upon the very gospel which he taught, answered that what Geraldus had reported of the generation of this bird was absolutely true, and that with his own eyes he had beholden young, as yet but rudely formed, and also handled them, and if I were to stay in London for a month or two, that he would take care that some growing chicks should be brought in to me. The goose tree is also figured by Delabelle and D'Alichams, but it is refreshing to find that Colonna, in his Futurbasinus, fifteen ninety two flatly denies the truth of the legend. The importance of Gerard's herbal in the history of botany is chiefly due to an improved edition brought out by Thomas Johnson in sixteen thirty three, thirty six years after the work was originally published. Johnson was an apothecary in London and cultivated a physic garden on Snow Hill. His first botanical work was a short account of the plants collected by members of the apothecary's company on an excursion in Kent. This is of interest as being the earliest memoir of the kind published in England. Later on, descriptions of botanical tours in the west of England and in Wales appeared from his pen. But it is as the editor of Gerard that he is chiefly remembered. He greatly enlarged the herbal and illustrated it with Plantain's woodcuts. His edition contained an account of no less than 2,850 plants. Johnson also corrected numerous errors, and the whole work, transformed by him, rose to a much higher grade of value. It was reprinted, without alteration, in 1636. When the civil wars broke out, Johnson, who is said to have been a man of great personal courage, joined the Royalists. He took an active part in the defence of Basinghouse, and received a shot wound during the siege, from which he died. John Parkinson, 1567-1650, to may be regarded as the last British herbalist of the period we are considering, whose work was of any great interest from the botanical point of view. His portrait is shown in plate 13. Like Gerard and Johnson, he cultivated a famous garden in London. In these days of bricks and mortar, it is hard to realise that gardens of such importance flourished in Holborn, Snow Hill and Long Acre respectively. Another important London garden of the period was that of Lambeth, belonging to John Tredescent, gardener to Charles I. Parkinson became apothecary to James I and botanist to Charles I. The early of the two books, by which he is remembered, was rather of the nature of a gardening work than of a herbal. It appeared in 1629 under the title Paradisi in Sola Paradisus Terrestris, a garden of all sorts of pleasant flowers which our English eye will permit to be nursed up, together with the right ordering planting and preserving of them and their uses and virtues. It has lately become accessible in the form of a facsimile reprint. The words Paradisi and Sole form a pun upon the author's name, and may be translated of Park in Sun. The book was dedicated to Queen Henrietta Maria, with the prayer that she will accept this speaking garden. The preface to this work is entirely at variance, with the idea that scientific knowledge has only been gradually acquired by the human race. In Parkinson's words, God, the creator of heaven and earth, at the beginning when he created Adam, inspired him with the knowledge of all natural things, which successively descended to Noah afterwards, and to his posterity. For as he was able to give names to all the living creatures, according to their several natures, so no doubt but he had also the knowledge, both what herbs and fruits were fit, either for meat or medicine, for use or for delight.
Elaborate directions for the planting and treatment of a garden precede an account of a large number of plants cultivated at that time, with some mention of their uses. The book is illustrated with full-page wood engravings, of no great merit, in each of which a number of different plants are represented. Text figure 55 is taken from part of one illustration. The figures are partly original and partly copied from the books of Delacluse, Delabelle and others. In 1640, Parkinson followed up this work with a much larger volume, dealing with plants in general, and called the Theatrum Botanicum, the Theatre of Plants, or an herbal of a large extent. He complains that the publication of the work has been delayed, partly through the disastrous times, but chiefly through the machinations of wretched and perverse men. According to the preface to the Paradisus Terrestris, the author's original idea was merely to supplement his description of the flower garden by an account of a garden of simples. This scheme grew into one of a more extensive and general nature, but without losing the predominant medical interest which would have characterised the work as originally planned. In accordance with his intention, the virtues of the herbs are dealt with in great detail. Parkinson's herbal is in some ways an improvement on that of Johnson and Gerard. Almost the whole of Bohin's peanuts is incorporated, with the result that the account of the nomenclature of each plant becomes very pull and detailed. Many of de Labelle's manuscript notes are also inserted. The scheme of classification adopted is, however, markedly inferior to that of de Labelle. Occasionally, in spite of his comparatively late date, Parkinson displays an imagination that is truly medieval. He is eloquent on the subject of that rare and precious commodity, the horn of the unicorn, which is a cure for many bodily ills. He describes the animal as living far remote from these parts and in huge vast wildernesses, among other most fierce and wild beasts. He discusses also the use of the powder of mummies as a medicine, and his description is enlivened with a picture of an embalmed corpse. The illustrations to the Theatrum Botanicum are of no importance, being chiefly copied from those of Gerard. The great British botanists who follow next upon Parkinson in point of time are Robert Morrison, born 1620, and John Ray, born 1627. But as their chief works appeared after the close of the period selected for special study in this book, 1470 to 1670, and as they were botanists in the modern sense rather than herbalists, we will not attempt any discussion of their writings. While Morrison and Ray were advancing the subject of systematic botany, Nehemiah Grew and the Italian Marcello Malpighi, born respectively in 1641 and 1628, were laying the foundations of the science of plant anatomy. Their work, also, is outside the scope of the present book, and it is only mentioned at this point in order to show that the latter part of the 17th century witnessed a considerable revolution in the science. From this period onwards, with the opening up of new lines of inquiry, the importance of the herbal steadily declined, and though books which come under this heading were produced even in the 19th century, the day of their preeminence was over. End of chapter 4, part 6 Recording by Mocha.